I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fit the Mission. The conservative movement to ban books in schools and libraries is gaining strong momentum across the country. According to the American Library Association, a vast majority of the targeted books are by or about LGBTQ plus people or black people. Titles like Antangle Makes Three, a book about penguins at the Central Park Zoo, or Hair Love, about a black girl and her dad learning how to embrace natural hair. During the last academic year, there were about 2,500 instances of book bans in U.S. schools, the highest number in recorded history. 2023 is on track to break that record. Conservative groups say the effort is about defending parental rights. Last month, House Republicans passed legislation that would allow parents to review certain materials and activities in classrooms. Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries slammed the bill. They want to ban books about history, ban books about the American journey, ban books about the Holocaust, ban books about slavery, ban books about the civil rights movement, ban books about the LGBTQ plus experience, ban books about our collective journey. While the bill is unlikely to go far in a Democratic-controlled Senate, the measure is expected to be a cornerstone issue for Republicans heading into the 2024 elections. Bay Area children's book authors are feeling the impact. Maggie Takuda-Hall is an Oakland author of children's books like also an octopus, and The Mermaid, The Witch, and The Sea. Her latest book, Love in the Library, is based on her grandparents' relationship. It's set in Minidoka, an incarceration camp where Japanese Americans were detained during World War II. Recently, Scholastic, one of the most prominent publishing houses, reached out to Takuda Hall to license the book and feature it in an Asian-American, Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander narratives collection. She was thrilled, but the opportunity came with a censorship request to remove the word racism and historical context from the author's note. Today on Fit the Mission, Maggie Takuda Hall explains how authors like herself are being impacted by the national conservative movement to ban children's books and the stakes that she says we all have to pay attention to now. Maggie, welcome to Fit the Mission. Thank you for having me. Maggie, you've authored a number of best-selling books for children. Love in the Library has been a bit different, though. It's a personal story about your family. Tell me why you wanted to write it. I wrote the text for Love in the Library right after President Trump was elected into office. And his absolute first thing that he did with power was try to sign the Muslim or travel ban into existence by executive order. Mm -hmm. And it was clear to me right then, you know, like a chill went down my spine. And as a Japanese person and as a Jew, like what kind of direction he was trying to take our country in immediately. And it was horrifying. And I tried to kind of think about what I had to offer in a moment like that that was unique to me. I was going to do all the things I needed to do. I was going to write my postcards and make my calls and do my protests. But I was also aware that in our family, we have this beautiful story of resilience and strength in the face of incredibly punishing state-sanctioned racism. And I wanted to be able to share that with our youngest readers. And Love in the Library is this beautiful story about how your grandparents met while they were incarcerated. Mm -hmm. It was published in early 2022. What has the reception to the book been like since then? What have you heard from readers, from families, parents who have shared their book with their loved ones? I mean, largely the response has been really kind and meaningful to me. I hear from a lot of other people who've had ancestors or family 
who were incarcerated, who this story means an awful lot to. I've heard from other people whose grandparents met and fell in love in different incarceration camps and who this means a lot to. And from, you know, people who didn't know much about this history at all and it was a way in and a way in to talk about it with their kids. And then I also get a spattering of people who are very angry about it. Not so much the love story aspect, everyone's fine and comfortable with that, but in the author's note, I'm very clear about situating what happened to my grandparents within American history, and it's not an aberration, and I was unwilling to talk about it that way. Mm-hmm. And so that's largely what the author's note is about, and that is when I get hate mail. <laughs> and we'll get into that author's note more in yeah. just a bit, but you recently got an email with this incredible offer from mm-hmm. Scholastic to license Love in the Library. Now, I'm not in the publishing world, but I know Scholastic as yes. a kid. I loved saving my allowance <laughs> to order books from them. I loved their book fairs at my school. How big of a deal is Scholastic for an author like you? It's a huge deal. It's like if there's a public school, there's a strong chance Scholastic has a direct relationship with them. They have a unique place in the marketplace in children's books that is so valuable and so singular to them. And so to receive an opportunity from Scholastic that they want to license one of your books is a big deal. And especially for a story where you hope that it will have a place in the classroom, a story like Love in the Library, which I did really largely write with the intention that it go into schools. It means a lot. So, Maggie, you get this incredible opportunity, but it's contingent on one thing. It's contingent on a change to your author's note, which appears at the end of Love in the Library. There are two cuts that they suggest to make. It cuts the word racism. And then there's a suggestion to cut an entire paragraph. And I was wondering if you could read that paragraph for me, which Scholastic wanted to omit. Yes. As much as I would hope this would be a story of the distant past, it is not. It is very much the story of America here and now. The racism that put my grandparents into Minidoka is the same hate that keeps children in cages on our border. It's the myth of white supremacy that brought slavery to our past and allows police to murder black people in our present. It's the same fear that brings Muslim bans. It's the same contempt that creates voter suppression, medical apartheid, and food deserts. The same cruelty that carved reservations out of stolen, sovereign land that paved the Trail of Tears. Hate is not a virus. It is an American tradition. Hmm. Why did you want to put that author's note originally when you wrote this book? And what would the book be without that context? It's such a good question, and it's something that I think about all the time and that I thought about very seriously when I did this. So typically, author's notes in picture books about Japanese incarceration talk about Pearl Harbor and World War II. And I think, of course, that is all important context. But one of the things that to me was of utmost important was to situate it within this American history of it happening, of state-sanctioned, perfectly legal racism. And that's what happened to my grandparents. And even after Korematsu versus the United States, the ruling was not that this can never happen again. The ruling was like, oh, we shouldn't have done this particularly to Fred. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was an opportunity to me to ensure that my grandparents' story not be whitewashed into something simple, into just a, a nice love story about people who happened to meet. It had to be told in its full truth. And its full truth is this backdrop of incredible state violence. You know, my 
grandparents lost everything when they were incarcerated. Mm -hmm. My grandfather had two pharmacies at the time when he was put in there and lost them both. And he had worked so hard to build that up. People lost their homes, their businesses. They lost everything. And it's not a thing that just happened to us. It is not Mm -hmm. a uniquely Japanese-American experience to have experienced racism in this country and to have it be perfectly legal. And when we elide that truth, when we refuse to acknowledge the full scope of what has happened, we make any kind of healing or progress or change from it impossible. And also, it feels like, Maggie, you're asserting the belief that children have the ability to understand and receive this kind of context. Oh, absolutely. I Absolutely, kids are capable of understanding the truth. And more than that, adults have a moral obligation to tell them the truth. And I don't mean taking your four-year-old by the ears every morning and whispering like, life is bad into their face. But like, (laughs) kids are capable of understanding incredibly complex and often negative things. And our momentary discomfort in telling our kids hard truth is not an indication that we're doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. I think people so often conflate feeling bad in the moment with that being a bad choice. And in this case, I think that our discomfort is necessary. If we want racism to actually cease to exist, if we want to actually eradicate it in any kind of meaningful way, pretending it's not there will never do the trick. It will never Mm -hmm. get rid of it. It will just make it more powerful and it will make it more potent later in life when they, they confront it or even when they're confronting it in their youth and in their childhood. But more than that, one of the things that I thought about a lot when I put together this author's note and have thought about a lot subsequently as I go into schools and present this book to children, is that the communities who face these kinds of state-sanctioned violence already have to talk to their kids about what's going on. So I know that kids are capable of understanding it because they are forced to understand it. It is not a surprise to like a Native American kid that the government lies. And it's not a surprise to a Black kid that the police can be dangerous. These are truths Mm -hmm. that these communities have to face all the time. What we're shying away from when we shy away from talking about it is usually protecting kids who have the privilege of not experiencing that kind of racism. Mm -hmm. And frankly, we're protecting white children over the possibility of a better future. And it's myopic, and I think it's not going to lead us anywhere good. And it hasn't. Right. And and the backdrop of all of this, Maggie, is, you know, 2023 is on track to beat last year's book banning record. According to the group PEN America, there have been about 2,500 instances of book bans in U.S. schools during last year's academic Mm -hmm. year. So it appears here that Scholastic is buckling to the pressure of what's happening across the country right now, right? I mean, that that is what their offer to license your book with this omission is suggesting. It certainly does suggest that. I can't speak to what Scholastic's intentions were. All I can say is that I know for a fact that books about Japanese incarceration are banned anyway. Baseball saved us, banned. They called us the enemy, banned. These stories have already been deemed dangerous. There was kind of no middle ground to be found if you're already unwilling to tell these stories. And not calling what happened racism will not appease those same people. 
So it was not, in my opinion, a good or even reasonable choice. Now, you've been, I'm sure, very acutely aware of what's happening, how book bans have been escalating in recent yeah. years, especially in Republican-led states like Florida, Missouri. What have you been bracing for as a Bay Area author? I haven't had to brace because I'm already facing it. It's already happening. What it's And it's mm-hmm. akin to what has happened with Scholastic, where it's not that they're saying you can't tell this story at all. We're not going to ban it. But we would like you to soften the edges. We would like you to not talk about other things related to this with our kids. They're not ready for it. We're not ready for these conversations. I've continually received that kind of feedback. This is not unique to Republican-led states. And I think when we pretend that it is, we make it impossible for us to reckon with what we're dealing with right here. I'd say the most angry reaction I ever got from a school was from a private school in Berkeley. Berkeley, not exactly famous for its like right-wing politics. You know, like it's This impulse to protect kids from anything that might make them momentarily uncomfortable is not a uniquely right-wing phenomenon. And when we pretend that it's only Republicans who do it, we're telling ourselves lies. An offer from Scholastic can be a game-changer for a children's book author. How did Maggie Takuda Hall weigh that decision? She'll share after a quick break. You're listening to Fifth and Mission. You can support the newsroom that creates this podcast by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Maggie Takuda Hall, you share in your blog post that you made the decision to not accept Scholastic's offer. Mm-hmm. You do note that you got a lot of support from your publisher, Candlewick. Yes. But at the same time, tell me just how did making that decision feel for you? You're an author. You've made this career out of telling stories to children, telling the truth to children. And here's a deeply personal and important story about your family and your voice is getting censored. Just tell me, how how has it been for you? Honestly, pretty excruciating. It's not... It's been a terrible few days. (laughs) I've... um, Mm -hmm. I got the email while I was like pushing my daughter in her stroller and I saw Scholastic wants to license your book. And I actually like made a noise out loud in public because I was so excited. And it was immediately tempered by the edit that they were asking for was just ludicrous. And I think I waffled around, well, could I let them do it anyway? Because I just want this opportunity so badly for probably a full minute of just like in denial that like maybe there was a way to make this work. Maybe there was a compromise. But as soon as I looked back at the red line that they had given me and the word racism was gone, it was Mm -hmm. clear that this is not a moment for compromise. This isn't a place where I can make that decision. And so – I mean, what I've been, I feel sure that I am doing the right thing and I am proud of the decision that I've made, but being put in a position to have to make that decision has been so offensive for so many reasons and has been so disheartening as well because you worry, you know, like children's authors were like fighting over nickels. This is not like a gangbusters business that's just like chock-a-block full of money. And so opportunities mm-hmm. can be thin on the ground. And saying no to one is painful. 
especially one where it's it puts you in direct contact with classrooms where it's like this amazing opportunity to become part of a curriculum that can't be understated how meaningful those books are in kids' lives and to have that opportunity kind of dangled in front of me but at this horrible price was really sad. This industry will say a lot of things about wanting diverse voices and about supporting people of color or whatever it is, whatever their new hashtag campaign is around, you know, stop Asian hate or whatever they're going to say. But when push comes to shove, our voices and our perspectives are the first thing that they are willing to jettison from the ship. Mm -hmm. Just this whole time, I was like, I wish this hadn't happened. (laughs) I just wish this hadn't happened. Right. And in your blog post, Maggie, you shared that you sort of hesitated how public to Mm -hmm. be about this situation. Ultimately, you sort of put your vulnerability out there. You shared what this experience was like for you. And you've received a lot of positive Mm -hmm. feedback and support. Describe to me that vulnerability for you to write about this experience for you. I mean, the vulnerability is also excruciating. I would much prefer to have a unassailable authorial presence in the world of just like, I write my stories, I'm guided by my craft, this is my art, and here's what I do. And to have any kind of focus pulled onto me that is not about that is not the ideal. It's not what I woke Mm -hmm. up that day hoping for. It's not what I've woken up any day hoping for. And it's... (laughs) It's uncomfortable and I hate it. It's the feeling of everyone staring at you with your underpants on. And of course, I would prefer (laughs) not to have done that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was also aware that if I let this pass in the dark, it would just keep happening. And I knew in a lot of ways, I'm very uniquely privileged. I have a career that is going pretty well. And Mm -hmm. if I didn't this would just keep going on and I'm in a position where I can weather this. And so I felt I had an obligation to whether I wanted to or not. Has this experience changed you or how you think about your work at all? No, I think my work is very much the same and I have always stood by it. Mm -hmm. I've just never been put in a position where I had to do it in quite such a public or confrontational way. And as somebody with the disposition of a golden retriever who just wants everyone to like them, it's it's not comfortable. (laughs) It's not mm-hmm. what I would like. Mostly, I would like it if you just read my make-believe stories and we could have a good time together. Like, that's mostly what I'm looking for is to, you know, provide entertainment and escape and a joy of reading for younger readers. This is not what I intended my career to be or defined by in any way. Now, book bans have led to some troubling updates, including things like a potential shutdown of a library system in Texas. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just such a snowball effect from these book bans. Are there things that you're most concerned about right now? I'm concerned about the kids in the places where these book bans are happening. I'm really scared for them because they won't have access to understand that there's a bigger world out there that's ready to love them for who they are and as they are. I think in all of this, I want to be really clear. Of course, books about Japanese incarceration have been banned, but largely the focus has been on queer kids, trans kids, and particularly where that intersects with blackness. And the idea of further isolating a group of people who are already so marginalized by our culture is so ugly and terrifying to me. 
And I don't mean to sound alarmist, but the Jew in me is always aware of the parallels to Germany. When you start saying that a certain person's story is dangerous and illegal and you can't even look at it, you're making the foundation for an argument for attacking their personhood, for attacking their bodies, for attacking who they are. You're starting the argument for their eradication. So I'm very scared. I'm particularly scared for my trans brothers and sisters who do not deserve this attack and who are weathering the worst of it. Mm. Now, other than buying books from POC authors like and yourself, authors. how else <laughs> and queer authors, yeah, how else can Bay Area readers support you right now in this moment? They can pay attention to where book bans are happening. They can pay attention to who's being nominated onto their library boards and onto their school boards. They can also support groups like the ACLU and PEN America who are doing really great work and already have a lot of infrastructure in place and boots on the ground to kind of fight against these things. But aside from that, I think the thing that I would ask of Bay Area people is to remember that this is not uniquely Republican and that every time we make a decision that it is easier to not tell a kid the truth about something, we're part of this problem. Mm. And so I would encourage them to have the courage to talk to their own children about the reality of what our country is like. And the reality is that state-sanctioned violence is perfectly legal in so many cases. And if we want something better, we have to be honest about it. Maggie, thanks so much. I appreciate you sharing your experience with me. Thanks for having me. Maggie Takuda Hall is the author of the book Love in the Library. To learn more about her work and to read her blog post about her experience with Scholastic, visit her website, prettyokmaggie.com. On Friday, Scholastic published a statement in response to the backlash they've received since Maggie raised her concerns. In it, Scholastic's president and CEO, Peter Warwick, writes that the requested edit to the author's note was, quote, wrong and not in keeping with Scholastic's values. He continues stating that, quote, no division will request edits to any published books for our collections moving forward, something that has been and remains our policy. Scholastic expressed hope that they'll still be able to share love in the library as part of their collection. Those conversations are ongoing. Thank you to King Kaufman for editing this episode and to you for listening.